From Sora Schools, it's Sora Learning Lab, a show where we dive into the world of learning research and innovative pedagogy. Through interviews with education researchers, advocates, and innovators, we'll explore the ideas and trends behind the future of learning. Our guest today is Alec Resnick. With a background in math and physics from MIT, he made educational tools and toys at Nub Labs before co-founding Sprout & Company to explore novel ways of supporting playful scientific investigations. Eventually, that exploration led him to designing and proposing a new kind of public high school, one where learning looks less like a school and more like a creative studio, Powderhouse Studios. We're joined today by Alec Resnick, um, co-founder of many things, but most known for Powderhouse Studios. I've known you, I've known of you, at least Alec, for four plus years because of this fascinating work, but I know you've done tons of other interesting things leading up to this work. So could you start by just telling the listeners a little bit more about your personal background and what sparked this interest in education? I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Florida. I was excited about becoming a scientist, becoming a physicist. Initially, my ideas were kind of naive enough that I, uh, when I was growing up, I thought like, oh, first you have to make a bunch of money so that you can have your own lab so you can do science. So I didn't really know anyone who was a scientist professionally. But um, my brother, who's 10 years older than me, I idolized him growing up and he eventually became a scientist. And I realized like, oh, you can get paid to do that. It's a whole job, it's a thing. And so I ended up going to, to college, to MIT, um, to study math and, and physics. And uh, I had a really great time there. And that's really where my interest in education started, um, kind of unwittingly, because uh, MIT has this really robust undergraduate research program, where as an undergraduate, you can do research projects with graduate students and, and other PIs. I had a really great time in it, and it was full of very formative experiences, both intellectually, but also kind of in a meta way, because I noticed that the ways that I was learning and the ways that I was working in those research projects were very different than the ways I was learning and working in class, which I was also having a really great time in. But I feel like over time, I had kind of an accumulating sense that something was awry educationally, um, ranging from things like, I'm sure we've all had kind of the experience of acing a class that you know you had no business acing in the sense that you knew you didn't understand what was going on in a deep way. Um, but also, you know, growing up in a small town, when I came to a place like MIT, I assumed and I was right that I would be like surrounded by people who were much more academically kind of sophisticated and skilled than I was. Um, but that didn't necessarily translate into like them having a much healthier or more effective relationship to like learning and working on school stuff. And so I got interested in the idea that you might be able to kind of redesign the uh, higher education experience around research. So instead of having these research experiences as like an ancillary piece of your traditional course load, what if that what if those were the centerpiece? Um, and that was also coming at a time in my life where I was finding myself more and more interested in connecting the work that I was doing and that I would eventually be doing to political and social and human issues, as opposed to being kind of primarily motivated by the, I guess, intellectual or aesthetic things that initially brought me to physics. And just by chance, um, a friend of mine uh, who is a few years older than me, for different reasons, had kind of gotten into education after his training in math. He eventually became a co-founder of mine at Sprout, but he was responsible for introducing me to the idea that anyone had ever even like thought about education reform critically, like where these ideas weren't, you know, he was my introduction to like Dewey and Holt and this whole world of like, it sounds silly to say now, but I just didn't even think that there would have been a field whose purpose was to change education, to improve education. And again, in another kind of moment of serendipity, uh, MIT is a little tiny teacher education program. And the person who normally teaches the first course uh, happened to be out on sabbatical and the person who was there covering for him ended up becoming a board member of ours and had like a really formative effect on me in all sorts of ways. Uh, in part because in that course, he, um, he did a really good job maybe of articulating at least two things persuasively. So at a school like MIT, most of the folks who are taking a class in education aren't doing so because they want to do education for a long time, or at least they weren't when I was taking it back in 2006 or whatever. Um, they're doing it so that they can, because maybe they have a, an interest in education, or maybe they're going to go teach for a few years and then go off to be a chemical engineer or consultant or whatever. Um, and and back here, the, the person who's running this course at the time um, did a really good job of framing that, A, there were lots of ways to contribute to the to education that didn't look like showing up as a teacher in somebody else's classroom, where you could make 
hardware, you could make software. Like this was just a few years after the hundred dollar the so laptop project um, launched and things like that. Uh, you could start schools, you could create policy, you could create curricula. Just trying to emphasize that there are many dimensions to it. Um, and then the other thing was that he really articulated that. Uh, there are lots of reasons to care about learning other than school, but that learning and education and human development is actually a much bigger field than school is as a field. And I found both those points really persuasive and very compelling. Um, and so after college, I joined a small startup called Nub Labs, where we spent most of our time designing educational tools and toys and kits, um, because among other things, I had found very compelling the idea that um, the tools that you have access to can change what and how and who learns. So I was very interested in kind of rethinking things from that point of view. And then I ended up leaving that after a few years uh, for, among other reasons, probably the biggest, that it became clear that there is only so much you could do by changing the tooling if you kept other things the same, either in terms of teacher background or pedagogy or kind of cultural context, all these things where we were having experiences where the issues or what we saw as the limitations of our uh, products weren't the products. <laughs> but like how they were getting used and how people were getting onboarded with them and similar, um, which again, sounds kind of like very naive in retrospect, but what can you say? Um, so after Nub Labs, uh, I teamed up both with Nagel, the fellow I was mentioning who had run this arts and science summer camp, and another mutual friend of ours, Sean Lin, um, to start Sprout and kind of to start with the other end of things, to start with the design of experiences rather than the design of the, the tools. And we kind of very explicitly had set out to use that as a sandbox to learn about how do we design the kinds of learning experiences that are informed by the principles and the philosophies that, that are most important to us. And so that turned into years of running a mixture of in and after school programs with youth and evening programs with adults. Um, which were really, really compelling and very helpful for us. But then over time, uh, the next limitation we kind of ran into structurally was time, was the amount of time we had access to with people, where in our programs, you know, we are fortunate if we got to spend three to five hours a week with somebody for 12 to 16 weeks. And especially if you're interested in people designing and developing their own projects, um, 30 to 50 hours is just not actually that much time. We didn't really know what we were going to do about that. And then kind of out of the blue, uh, at the behest of a handful of parents whose kids had participated in our program and really enjoyed them, uh, this group of families had, unbeknownst to us, kind of lobbied the, the schools and the mayor locally to get Sprout more involved in the schools somehow. And actually through a process that's still unclear to me, that impulse turned into the mayor suggesting to us that maybe you should start a school under this particular piece of legislation that was somewhat new at the time called the Innovation Schools Legislation. So at, at first we were like, ah, I'm not sure that this really makes sense. Luckily the mayor persisted. Uh, when we took a closer look at the legislation, we realized that theoretically at least, we might be able to get the level of flexibility and autonomy we thought would be required to kind of continue doing the kind of work we'd be excited by. And kind of confronted with the fact that we didn't know how else we were going to get access to time with a broad and diverse group of youth, we decided to kind of move forward with that. Because up until that point, basically, Sprout had been funded by uh, a quarter of our programs worked with either wealthier public school districts or independent schools that could afford to pay us. And that cross-subsidized the other three quarters who maybe covered materials, but we could have never have run an organization off of. And so when you're starting to think about what if I want to spend 30 or 40 hours a week with people instead of three to five, uh, the like financials of that mean that you're either looking at somehow endowing a free public free private school, somehow starting a public school, or working in the world of juvenile corrections. And starting a public school seemed like the least intimidating of those of those three. Um, so that started what would become, you know, a six, seven year process of looking to to launch Pratt House. That's amazing. And I look forward to us discussing all the challenges that it took to get this off the off the ground, especially trying to interface with the traditional system. Um, but you mentioned some of these ideas that you were exposed to at MIT, and I guess not necessarily at MIT, but in the time that you were at MIT became really formative to your worldview about education. So what were some of those philosophies, you know, theories, science that, that was so formative in this time period? Um, I'd say I think the three thinkers who most struck me at the time were... Uh, one, this guy, John Holt, the quote-unquote father of modern homeschooling, and really the thing that struck me 
was kind of twofold. One is not so much an idea, but it's that many of the phenomena he cataloged around how people get in their own way of learning and how school kind of develops bad habits really resonated with some of those kind of dysfunctions I was alluding to earlier, just observing in my, myself and my peers as we were, we were working. So that gave him a level of credibility. And then uh, to me at least, and then um, the idea that was really kind of formative and valuable for me to have words put to was just the idea that young people are people and that the same ideas you might have around coercion or non-coercion and the role that that plays in the world needs to have some sort of articulate presence in whatever your theory or design and how you work with young people. And then I think another person was the work of this guy, Seymour Papert, whose work I find incredibly compelling for a lot of different reasons. Uh, I think his emphasis on representations and the right representations for thinking about your own thinking and the, the process of just constructing your own mental model being that, it, that you construct it. Uh, I think I had never, you know, I'd had plenty of experiences where it was obvious to me that things that were more active were more helpful to me or others than things that were less active and so forth. But having um, a clear idea about what the mechanism of that might be and beginning to get a picture of what it might mean to think rigorously about the ways that people think. Um, that was very, very compelling to me, especially realized in the form of, you know, in his work, I've made tools that let people think things they couldn't think otherwise. And that like, it was just a very clear example of like a, a research agenda with all sorts of ramifications that I didn't see pursued. And then maybe the third thinker that really struck me um, was Dewey, which I think is very common in the world of education. But the thing that really mattered to me about him at that point was, um, the connection between education and like civil society and society and the notion of progress. I think Dewey's work gave me a lot of language for understanding what I thought the relationship between school and the kind of construction of a healthy republic could or should look like and seeing how big the gap was between that and what I observed in a typical day-to-day -day or in the programs that we ran on schools and so forth. Um, was very important. But in some ways, the most important thing was just the idea that it was a problem that you could work on, the same way that you could work on clean energy, that like you could bring the same kind of thinking and analysis and energy that you might bring to an open, inventive technical problem, that that was actually also true of education, uh, was really a revelation to me. I love that. All three of those thinkers are, are truly incredible and also formative in, in my thinking, in my journey. When you discussed your the dysfunctions you noticed within your own learning through your, your educational journey and those of your classmates, I often tell this anecdote of I fell in the really toxic pattern of, of learning behavior in high school and college where learning's always been my favorite thing to do from a pretty young age. Been, I've loved reading, I've, I've just loved learning, but... Uh, even how I engage with my knowledge and all my, you know, in my studies and all my AP whatever classmates, we fell in this hilarious cadence being the first you might call YouTube generation where we would, <laughs> um, we would completely ignore what the teacher was talking about because we yeah. knew that there are better resources online to learn this thing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It, it was just in this generation and the current trends we're, we're observing, it's hilarious how dysfunctional, formalized, structured learning which is schooling is so that that story really resonated and those three thinkers your your comment about popper these he might use the word objects to think with or these mental models that we're creating one thing that really struck me when i was first reading maybe four years ago don't know how long it was um powderhouse's initial vision and documents was your emphasis on three, what Sora might call values, um, I forget which word you exactly used, but the computation, narrative, and design that you wanted to be entrenched in all these learning experiences. So using perhaps that philosophy or just a broader perspective, could you explain the priorities in the school design of Powderhouse? Uh, specifically with regards to computation, narrative, and design? I assume that's, that's kind of a through line through it all, but we'd love to just hear more about the structure and design in general. I think we had kind of like two problems or goals uh, when we were thinking through those elements of the design. So one is that because we're interested in people doing things that they care about, you naturally have to admit a lot more divergence or unpredictability into your design because it means that somebody that on some level, not that you necessarily are literally asking, what do you want to do today? That doesn't have to be the implementation, but that on some level, you're relinquishing some control to something that's more organic, whether that's uh, quote unquote entirely student-centered in terms of asking somebody what they want to work on, or it's just a process of surfacing and discovering project ideas that you don't plan ahead of time weeks or months in advance. And one of the challenges that that creates is um, 
when you're talking to people, they want to know, okay, but like, what, what do people learn and when do they learn it? And how do you know they're going to learn it at this point and, and so forth? And uh, we're generally of the opinion that um, there's such a minute sliver uh, school can only afford to cover such a minute sliver of what's known anyway, <laughs> that it's, it does matter what you learn, but it doesn't matter which, what you learn. Like it matters that you're learning something to make that precise and to make that more compelling, you know, uh, and to make it clear to people, we found ourselves naturally gravitating towards talking instead about the tools that people were using as they were learning so that we could kind of emphasize fluencies over kind of uh, canon. So, you know, in a scope like English literature, for example, you can talk to, you can begin to talk to people about the difference between being able to critique something or understand metaphor or communicate effectively themselves or appreciate literature. And you can separate that from how do you feel about whether or not your kid reads Othello. You can make that distinction. You can make the distinction between kind of the skills or the fluencies or the fundamental ideas and the canon with which we happen to try to exercise those in a traditional setting. And that's very helpful for people because it lets... Uh, I think there are many more people who are comfortable saying, yeah, I, I don't care about the canon that much if I can actually get more of that fluency and other things that the model might offer me. So computation and narrative and design were kind of our, our first and most overarching attempt to articulate what a few of those tools were that somebody was, could have a sense of like, oh, this people are going to be working with something specific. It's not going to be just whatever people want to do, per se, but the tools are very versatile. And so... Um, you know, the way we were thinking about it internally is kind of that with computation and narrative, you're representing ideas either for machines and kind of precise and formal language, whether that's algebra or computer programming or whatever. Um, and with narrative, you're representing ideas for other people. And that narrative can both be construed narrowly as like a story that you write down, but can also be construed more broadly when you think about visual narrative or you think about narrative and marketing and things like that. Um, and that to the extent that design and the problem solving process are something that we expect would come up across most projects and the documentation of most projects, we found that those kind of three things offered people enough of a starting point to think about, okay, wait, so what is my kid doing here? And like, what are the skills that they're developing? Um, and I don't, I think it was, it was an accident, but it was a useful accident that it at least mirrors people's traditional understanding of like numeracy and literacy. There was another important question. What does it mean for us to, I guess, be constructionists, which is to say like to be people who believe that building your own artifacts is one of the best paths to building mental models. They offer people a chance not just to make something that's of interest to them, but more importantly, because you can externalize a mental model, you can talk about it. So in kind of computational settings, you might talk about that as debugging. But, you know, I think plenty of people have the experience of clarifying, not just clarifying their thinking through writing, but like doing their thinking through writing, for example. And I don't think that's an, an accident. And so I think for us, we feel like it's both a versatile tool set that can uh, accommodate a wide range of interests and backgrounds, but it's also kind of pedagogically a very powerful tool set because they offer you a shared vocabulary for externalizing your mental models and more importantly, shared across everyone socially in the sense that everyone can have a sense of, oh, the, the kinds of things that we build here have these elements of computation and narrative and design. And therefore, even if two projects have nothing to do with each other semantically, they, they have a lot to do with each other in terms of the tools or the forms. And that, that's an important part of just creating a cohesive experience uh, amongst a group of people. I completely agree. And I mean, of course, we agree as, as school founders, but getting parents and other stakeholders to agree is difficult, partially because it's very easy to measure and track the development of surface level traits such as knowledge. So how do you tell the story of progress over time when you don't have, you know, when you can't just devolve to a standardized test, right? Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, so for us thinking about this, it was very helpful for us to break out the audiences of different kinds of evaluation and to think about their goals separately. So for ourselves, we ended up kind of having uh, three, three big buckets. So one was the district and the state, and they have a very particular set of accountability measures that they're interested in. And then another was families and kind of as an extension, college and employers, uh, because many families are going to care about those opinions by proxy, even if they don't have a necessarily their own relationship to them. And then the third was kind of like us as designers or pedagogues or kind of as a mission-based organization. And I think those, those three things are... They're not completely unrelated, hopefully, um, but they're, they're actually quite independent. So, for example, um, 
thinking about our own perspective as an organization, it's very important to us that people do work that's hard for them, work that's meaningful to them, work that they care about, right? Uh, those things can happen in ways that don't show up at all in either of those other, those first two buckets. But it's still important for us to be able to talk about that. That part's easy. So coming back, I'm happy to talk more about it. But I think the thrust of your question is like, assuming great stuff is happening, how does that great stuff kind of interface with traditional accountability infrastructure or grades and similar? So for families, being able to, to, to tell somebody, even if you don't know what class, quote unquote, your kid is taking in a given week or in a given month, you will be getting kind of a retrospective mapping of a lot of very qualitative and textured artifacts from process and product work from, from your kids' work back onto traditional standards means that you have some sense of what progress looks like and even just practical questions like, when is my kid going to graduate or are they on track or not, right? Because I think a lot of people's anxieties come from just a very reasonable question of, is my kid okay or not? Not that they always say it like that. Um, and so a big part of the work that we did had to do with how can you give somebody a sense of that while separating out, are they doing well or are they doing poorly? And instead putting the conversation on what have they done? Uh, as opposed to, I, I think evaluation often then kind of conflates the question, what have they done with how well have they, have they done it relative to their peers? And I think that instead we wanted to, there to be an ongoing conversation where somebody's like, oh, because my kid's done X and Y and Z, which I've seen in great detail, um, even if I don't want to engage in that detail, I can see, oh, you know, they're basically on track to graduate and therefore I feel okay about this. Uh, but then I think the other piece is the uh, kind of concerns or anxieties that, that something different or more narrative-based like that raises for people when they imagine other people looking at the work. So even if they manage to feel good about what their kid is doing, then there's still the question of like, how are you gonna render this legible to a post-secondary institution or to an employer or somebody like that? There, the two most important things that we did were one, um, started to connect both individual families uh, with colleges, but also to bring in some admissions counselors from a few different universities, ranging from like, quote unquote, top tier R1 universities to local state universities, community colleges, et cetera, to, to begin to paint for parents the picture that actually this is a problem universities already deal with, right? There are already students who come in who are homeschooled or who attend a weird private school that only offers narrative evaluation or whatever. Because um, I think many parents don't necessarily have a sense of just how flexible and heterogeneous that world is. And so, you know, when a college admits somebody from an independent school that has narrative evaluation, even though they don't have grades, part of what's happening there is, sure, they look at the credibility of the work, but part of it is also an evaluation of the brand of the school, the implicit understanding of what socioeconomic status and those supports for the students who go there will do for them in the school. Like, there are many factors that go into it. Then I think the second thing that was really helpful was that we uh, offered the ability to both get grades in retrospect and to get a traditional transcript in retrospect. So rather than designing forward from a class, we could say, we have this very finely grained record of all the work that you've done. Um, and in uh, a one-off, totally unsustainable way, if and when you need a transcript, we're gonna go back and map those things back onto uh, traditional classes through basically canonical textbooks associated with those classes. But it meant that we could separate out the design and the learning experience from how do you render that learning experience legible after the fact. And I think that was very important um, because it meant that then parents felt like, oh great, so no matter what, I'll be able to get something that looks pretty approximately like what a traditional student would be able to get. Um, and you know, I can't probably overstate how helpful it was for a district to suggest that they're going to adopt this, right? Because I think there's also just a lot of social proof embedded in that. And somebody thinks like, instead of a wacky group of mortgageless and childless 20-somethings starting a school, it's that, but, you know, there's some adult supervision. People don't ever say that, but I think that's part of what was what was going on at the time. Um, and then on the state and the, the district side of things, it was actually much simpler than we'd anticipated because education is such a local control issue in the sense that as long as somebody passes the 10th grade MCAS, the, the state test in Massachusetts, the state doesn't care how you get there. The state doesn't have strong opinions about exactly how you should structure your curriculum or similar. Uh, and there are plenty of anxieties at the school district level, but those anxieties aren't, those are cultural anxieties. They aren't like legal constraints. Um, and so that meant that a lot of that work was much more work around negotiation and design and I guess kind of education than it was a design problem for, um, for us from, from the start. I think one of the most difficult things around thinking about innovating different forms of assessment is our entire system 
and it's embedded, embedded deep in the psyche of most parents and students is designed to be zero sum, right? It's designed to be, it's not, an, it's not an infinite game. It's very much a finite game of I need to rank higher or I need to score higher than yeah. my friends sitting over there at the other table. So one parent and one students hear this, this narrative of we're going to openly share you know, feedback, we're going to have a narrative assessment on your strengths and weaknesses. That's almost like an attack against their very character, right? Because we've been tra- <laughs> and going back to <laughs> Popper, and I guess many educational theorists have opinions about this, we've trained students to be you know, averse to any sort of mistakes. And going back to your example with the debugging, it's like debugging is not our mentality in school. It's never to try to correct a problem. It's to avoid a problem at all costs, which is not realistic so i think in many respects um we've noticed this in other schools you've examined and and to some degree even our own school with our newer students saying any level of you know (laughs) transparency or narrative assessment abstracted or i guess uh, more texturized than just a number that they can optimize for is absolutely terrifying right yeah absolutely absolutely i think there are lots of conversations that come up in the context of evaluation or implicitly asking how am i doing that I think one of the most interesting things to me about them is that uh, it rarely strikes people as problematic that they don't know the answer to that. That it's that it, that you 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 don't feel equipped to self-assess is such an interesting blind spot to me because um, it's a little bit like you know can you imagine going into a doctor and having as little relationship to your sense of well-being and health as I think many students do to their academic success or their that's a great uh, analogy yeah. <laughs> And I just think it's such a dehumanizing and maybe unfair, but it's like something really dramatic has happened uh, through people's immersion in school. Uh, And I think it's only because it's so complete and so culturally embedded that it's as hard to name and escape as it is. I think a related question to that then is if you don't have a number to optimize for or, you know, whatever reductive method that we're using to indicate success for students and parents, a similar problem happens for for faculty, for for school improvement, because we just went through our whole accreditation process, by the way, um, for multiple bodies over the last year. Thank you. <laughs> but all they talk about all day and every day, which is understandable and important, is continuous improvement. Yeah. And totally. to me, that means something very different than what it means <laughs> to them. To them, it means how what numbers are you looking at? And ideally, the fewest numbers as possible. That's going to indicate if you're being successful (laughs) or not with these students. So how do you think about designing a school community where you can ensure that you are doing right by the students, you are improving their outcomes without, um, you know, basing that in reductivism? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think one thing that was helpful for us, at least to begin to articulate, is that many times... I think people's desire for that kind of metric or process, especially in education, but I think this is true more broadly as well, ultimately comes back to uh, a lack of trust in humans in the sense that you want a process that can de-risk, in this case, uh, uh, the creative and managerial work of a school. And I think people kind of intuit that this is crazy in lots of other contexts. So like if you imagine going to the team of people who are putting on a film and you sit the director and the screenwriter and the showrunner down and you say, like, so what metrics are you optimizing for on a day-to-day basis? I think people understand, like, wait, that's it's not that you shouldn't be thinking about like how many minutes did you shoot today. It's not that you shouldn't measure anything or anything like that, but it, it, they understand that there's a uh, something that might be hard to capture and optimize for. But I think school, for a lot of different reasons, um, is often in a position where you can't say, it's not reasonable to say, uh, we hire and train the right kind of people or we fire the people who aren't fit. Like you can't point to culture basically as an important factor. And I think it's important to separate that fact out from how do you manage internally. <laughs> so I think addressing that is an important problem. Um, and so, for example, in Paderas' design, uh, there are lots of things that we can track, right? So we can say, even though we have kind of an unusual relationship to standardized tests and because we don't have grade levels, you can't, you, you basically only take the test when you're ready. It means we can put a lightweight diagnostic system in place where you're generating lots of data about whether you're ready. <laughs> and that's something that somebody can look at. But the important thing is that you neuter it. You like, you, you make it not have any power in deciding 
who goes to the honors class versus the remedial class or what is somebody learning next week? You know, I mean, it's it's not something that should be informing teachers day to day decision making. And then there are also other kinds of metrics that we kind of encountered a surprising amount of success with when it comes to rendering that legible to people, which is like at a very high level, a lot of our design kind of grew out of the idea that we want people to make the transition from being students, which we just meant as like kind of passive recipients of instruction in one form or another, to what we were describing at the time as quote unquote independent investigators, which just means that they are identifying problems or questions that are interesting to them, designing projects or experiments that engage those, wrestling up the resources to do them, managing themselves and their time and those resources to get the project done, critiquing it, revising it, you know, that whole cycle on longer and longer time scales. And so we wanted somebody to be able to do that on a roughly thousand hour time scale. So like eight, eight to 10 months full-time work by the time they left Powderhouse. My experience, you know, vanishingly few 13-year-old people are in a position to do that. Vanishingly few 33-year-old people are in a position to do that. Right. Um, <laughs> But, but everyone's capable of doing it on some time scale, right? So whether that time scale is an hour or five hours, for some people it might be a day. In my experience, there are a few 13-year-olds for whom it's a week. Um, and so you can think about a lot of the design is just how do you move people from that point to the end? And, and that means that you, again, have now another metric that you can look at of like how independent is the work that somebody's doing? What percentage of the standards that we've mapped back onto have they covered yet? But the important thing about all these things is that because they're in the rear view mirror, it's not about evaluating how good or bad the work you've done is. It's about evaluating where you are and how that's supposed to inform where you want to go next in terms of a, a project that you might develop. So all of those factors are very helpful for communicating with various stakeholders, um, but they don't answer, I think, the other half of your question, which is internally, how do you manage around that? Because you know, we would never want to kind of incentivize staff to push people to do longer projects because they get like graded by the mean, you know, uh, project length time or whatever, the crazy like that. Um, so I think internally, it's a, a separate question. And I think internally, what we pursued looks much more similar to a cross between kind of studio critique in an architecture or an MFA context um, and kind of case management in a clinical context. And what I mean by that is that from our point of view, the two most important categories of dimension for a particular piece of work's evaluation are one, the work itself. So if you strip out who did it and in what context and you're just asking like, is this a good piece of art? Is this a good essay? Is this a good whatever it is? And then the other dimension is entirely developmental. It's like, regardless of what you did, <laughs> how much did you get out of this thing, right? And uh, th those are both important to us, right? So it's very possible for somebody to do a great project that they get nothing from or to get a lot of out of projects with a total failure. And, and so you want to be able to capture those, but you can't capture those in the same process. They're very different things to talk about. Um, and so there's, you know, very well-developed, not single, but a very well-developed family of traditions for how do you critique and evaluate qualitative work, whether like in an architecture studio or MFA program where, um, uh, part of what we would be asking people to do at the beginning of a project is articulate what would make the project a success um, on its own terms. And then that folds naturally into the critique process at the, in the culmination of a project. That's powerful. I completely agree. You touched on something there, which I think is really important in Sora's philosophy as well, which is um, you were saying, is this quality work, which is a total rabbit hole and it's reminiscent. It's reminiscent of Persig's work in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is a, a eclectic book. But remember, he has a passage about, you know, grading quality, right? Like, like what is quality? And we try to <laughs> make these, you know, reductive rubrics around quality is, you know, the average or 500 words or more plus, <laughs> right? Yeah. But in reality, we all have a pretty strong sense, at least um, a, a believable person, right? An expert has a really strong intuitive sense around what quality work is and so i believe in our philosophy and it sounds very similar to yours our job is to get the most believable person working with the student and then allowing them to have an a rather intuitive discussion around is this quality work and so using that as a starting point rather than you know here's a six point rubric that we're going to grade this assignment on right Kind of, kind of absurd when you think about it. And that passage, that book is awfully strange, but that passage in and of itself, even though it was kind of in the context to make a greater argument, anyway, uh, it, it's powerful for anyone who wants to chase it. So switching gears here for a second, Alec, let's talk about, obviously, if people look around in the world, Powderhouse is not happening right now as it was originally designed. So what what was the path? What was the journey? Why is that the case? Yeah, totally. Um... So maybe I'll start at the end, which is that I was rejected by the school committee. <laughs> um, 
and which was somewhat surprising, obviously, since, you know, it started in part initially with an invitation from mayor and obviously the school committee had been involved in the entire process, but maybe a very brief overview of the uh, authorization process under this particular legislation is that um, the legislation was initially created to allow districts or others to create schools that were different, schools that needed some flexibility or autonomy, either from state laws and regulations, uh, from local ordinances, or uh, potentially also collective bargaining agreements. And so the authorization process was basically you submit a prospectus that very broadly outlines your vision, that gets approved by the superintendent and president of the school committee, uh, sorry, chair of the school committee and president of the teachers union, that gives you uh, kind of reason to then convene a public body with a mixture of local families, principals, union representatives, superintendent appointees, et cetera, who minimally is charged with kind of pre-approving the design before it goes to the school committee. Maximally, they could also be the team that's actually going to operate the school. So like you could imagine if an existing district school wants to do something new and different where all of the people on that public body might be from within the school, basically. So in our case, we were more on the, the, the first half, first end of the spectrum because we were an outside group coming in. Basically, what you do is you articulate your design for a school, and then you articulate all the different flexibilities that you want from these various existing structures. Um, and we took about a year and a half or so to work with the community to draft the plan. And then kind of naively, you know, the law basically says any st state statute or regulation that conflicts with your plan, you can get flexibility from if you ask, if you ask the state. So we just naively kind of read all the laws that apply to public school and said like, yes, this one, no, this one, yes, this one, no, this one, and like explained why and what we'd want to do instead. And then we sent off to DESI to the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, this like you know, 500 page request for flexibilities. And it didn't, they called us up and basically said like, hold, hold your horses. <laughs> um, and, uh, and we learned that n nobody had ever even asked them for flexibility before. In addition to, we were asking for like a lot of flexibilities. And then there were some more complicated ones where we had asked for flexibilities that weren't purely educational in nature and therefore put the, dis the, the department in this weird position of authorizing kind of a relief from you know, a statute or regulation that might be overseen by the inspector general or somebody who's like looking at procurement and, and they hadn't anticipated that. So lots of complexity there. We eventually worked through all of those, got, got what we wanted from that. Um, and then we entered what technically ended up being kind of the longest phase of the authorization process, which was the negotiation with the teachers union, um, which fortunately was never really contentious, but was just very, very, very slow. And we encountered lots of challenges where we were in a position where we wanted to make things much better for staff, for example, by paying people a lot more, including a cost of living adjustment, all sorts of stuff. Um, but for a variety of reasons, I think kind of foremost among them that uh, as a union president, at least, it's rarely in your interest, it's rarely your first instinct to invite differences in working conditions across different schools. And so we ran into lots of challenges there, even aside from some of the more cultural challenges. And it was strange because union membership, like teachers were very supportive. Um, and you know, ultimately they ratified our carve out with like a 97% vote approval. But the, the leadership of the union, I think that was less true for. So that, that took quite, quite a while. And, you know, at this point, we're now five, six years into the process, uh, the authorization process. And along the way, we've raised money from a few different foundations. But maybe three or four years into the process, we won this big or were one of the winners of this big um, super school competition um, run by this organization called XQ, a product of the Emerson Collective. And um, in that competition, they were awarding $100 million to 10 different schools. And we were selected as one of the awardees. And that was really great, uh, kind of for the, the most important reason was actually because it brought so much attention and pressure to the approval process. So up until that point, we had been kind of the ones pestering everyone to move everything forward every step along the way. But when you're, you know, mayor and superintendent have to go on a national stage and say, like, I really support this. This is great and so forth. And, you know, obviously the money is helpful. Then all of a sudden there's a bunch of different kind of pressure to, to move something along. As we entered the, the school committee part of the approval process, we were surprised because we started to get the sense from the superintendent that they weren't fully on board. So we, we had started the process under a different superintendent. The current superintendent, Somerville Mary Skipper, had come in two or three years into our process. And she had been really great and very supportive throughout the throughout our design process, like spending tons of time with us. And in certain ways, seems like kind of the ideal candidate to oversee this kind of work because like she has experienced starting a pilot school herself. She cares a lot about innovation in public school. There are a lot of different advantages uh, that she brought to, brought to the work. Um, 
but kind of without getting into too much of the inside baseball, which I'm happy to go into, but it's probably boring to folks. What ended up happening was um, that all of a sudden on the one yard line, she said like, oh, I'm not sure we can actually afford this. And so, uh, you know, we had budgeted for it to be more affordable on a per capita basis to the district than the current per capita. Part of what we were doing with the grant money was to actually offset some of the initial costs around things like a campus or training our staff, like things that were one-off costs that wouldn't have been sustainable on a just a normal district per capita. And then kind of politically, it got slightly more complicated because the superintendent, not in so many words, but basically said like, unless you redirect a bunch of the money that you've raised to the district, um, like at the top level, so like not to run your school, but just like give the district a bunch of money, um, I'm not going to recommend the school for approval. So then she disappeared for a couple of weeks, like went MIA right before the vote, at least when it comes to responding to us. Uh, and then um, the night of the vote, she we were pulled into the mayor's office and she said like, actually, I'm sorry, I can't support this. And then we walked into like a room full of prepared statements of folks saying they're not going to vote for it. Um, so I have lots of thoughts about like why and how obviously that ended up happening, but that's kind of the chronology, I guess, that brought Can us. Let me to that dive point. into it quickly. I don't know how much you're, t- you're you know, sure. have to hold yeah, your yeah. tongue on this, but um, <laughs> sure. I, I'm fascinated. The quick change of heart that seems not necessarily about this individual specifically, but it was an organization decision. It sounds like, and it sounds like they went 180 degrees almost overnight. Try as me, right? And obviously, we've asked all the parties involved, and like people have worked with those parties and stuff. And we've never gotten a straight answer from from the district or others, but. Um, I'll share maybe a few a few hypotheses that have been floated. So one was, um, this one seems like the least plausible to me, but one was at the time Boston was looking for a new superintendent um, for a variety of reasons. The state union has taken a pretty adversarial posture to innovation schools or most structures that provide for school in-school autonomy. Some people thought the superintendent was kind of implicitly auditioning for the, the Boston superintendent role by demonstrating her, her posture to, to unions. Um, that just seems unlikely to me because like, who's looking at this tiny, weird school in Somerville. Like, I don't know, just, <laughs> I think our school's great, but I don't think it's that important, and I don't have any illusions that we're on some grand stage. So then the, the, the thing that seemed more plausible to me, which over time I think I've kind of come to believe more and more, was that over the course of a lot of the negotiation in the kind of weeks and months leading into the, what eventually became the rejection, it became clear that whatever we had written in the innovation plan, that kind of design document articulating our different autonomies, the superintendent had kind of assumed like, well, whatever you write there, you're eventually going to just do what I say in terms of the various flexibilities. And so realizing the role, I think as she realized like either that we were unwilling or that she didn't, she wouldn't necessarily have that control. Like I think that in some certain ways it's kind of ironic because as somebody who started a pilot school, I'm sure she appreciates the importance of autonomy and building leadership, but you know, everything changes when you move up the food chain. Um, so anyway, uh, I think that as she realized like, Oh, there's actually going to be a lot of complexity. Maybe I perceive some risk in this, like, uh, just as a small concrete example. Um, it was very important to us that, uh, the folks who ended up enrolling in the school were representative of Somerville youth at large. And like many communities, Somerville's struggling with gentrification. And for a variety of reasons, if we just ran a random lottery, we're confident we would get uh, uh, generally a wider and wealthier group of, of families enrolling. So we had gone through a lot of work to design an algorithm that was that would adjust for that representation along several axes, along, along race, gender, socioeconomic status, academic background, performance, and so forth. All of a sudden, that started generating conversations in the community of like, well, why don't we do this for every school? Or like, are we going to have to do this for every school? Like people who had moved close to a particular school because they knew what advantages that that might confer on them. And those kinds of complexities are not, at least in my experience, aren't the kinds of complexities either that a superintendent wants to deal with, certainly doesn't want to deal with publicly, and almost definitely doesn't want to deal with in any unified or consistent way, right? It's much more comfortable to be able to make one-off decisions where, you know, the superintendent, for example, basically said when we brought up our various equity concerns, she was like, well, I'll just make sure by kind of programming your school with different kinds of special education faculty that that's how we can kind of in a in a de facto way manipulate the demographics, which I appreciate the end goal of it, but you can kind of see how it keeps all of the control with the superintendent, which would be fine if we had any confidence that the superintendent would persist, right? But in, in a world where the you know median tenure is three to five years, 
even if we did completely trust the superintendent, it obviously isn't in the design's best interest. Were you at any point given this sort of ultimatum or like these are the problematic factors, I feel uncomfortable moving forward? Or was this just like you, Alec, was too much of a hassle to deal with? <laughs> <laughs> Got to make him go away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of things that I messed up kind of interpersonally or strategically other, or otherwise. But I think that one of the most frustrating things was e- even just on the money question at the very end, like when I mentioned that she went to MIA, we, as soon as we found out that she was concerned about money, we said, okay, how much does it have to cost? Like, what's the, what's, what can the district afford? And to this day, she's never gotten us a concrete answer to that question. Um, and so, you know, of course, you know, yeah, you want it as cheap as possible. Don't we all, and it's like, but that's like not a serious answer in a design, in a design conversation. And so that was when we first started realizing like, oh, there's something that's not a design problem at play here. Like, it's not about the thing that's getting proposed. It's about something about how it's changing like the politics of it or the management of it is like something that we can't fix within the confines of the design because we, we, you know, the, through a variety of changes, our initial proposal would have cost the district about uh, $13 million over the course of six years, um, which would have been roughly 80% of the per capita cost that the district normally spends. And through a variety of changes, including spending a lot more philanthropic and outside capital and like cutting the enrollment targets dramatically and so forth, we reduced that to about two and a half million over six years, which, you know, it's still more than I have in my bank account, but it's like small. So there's lots more kind of inside baseball details that I could point to that like evoke some of these bigger challenges. But I think once we realize like, oh, it's not a design problem, it's, it's actually about whether a new school should happen, period, that's autonomous and that it's the kind of politics of that. Um, the thing that's kind of remains most mystifying to me is what she gained from waiting that long. And so I think that that's the, the thing that was most surprising to us. But I think that she legitimately thought that her gambit with the foundation asking for money, more money or similar was going to was going to pay off. That's crazy. <laughs> I could come up with a more coherent response um but that that's kind of absurd um where do you feel this leaves us as people who are interested in creating meaningful innovation we're trying to create not just you know localized innovations that will impact a few students but really setting a a blueprint and trying to make wide-scale impact how does your experience how is that instructive to us i think the most worrisome lesson that we took maybe two most worrisome lessons that we took from the experience were, uh, one, I don't think we ever thought we were going to like change school from within. Like the idea was never to reform school from the inside. But I, th- I thought we did believe that we could create a sandbox where you could invent something that you could point to to say change is possible. And that then lots of other things open up outside of that. And I think, you know, for all the mistakes we made, uh, I think enough stars aligned in our context that you can extrapolate quite a lot from our experience in the sense that, you know, we spent six or seven years working basically full time on this, a group of, like I was saying earlier, mortgageless and childless 20 somethings that took kind of dramatic pay cuts in order to subsidize working on it. We raised kind of an obscene amount of money to do it. We had been working in the community for six, five or six years before that. The mayor invited us. It was a very pro-innovation, both like leadership at the executive level, but also in the community, there's demand for it. So you can kind of write out all these advantages. Um, and when you step back, it kind of feels like no matter what our tactical mistakes were, those advantages are so large and such a high bar to expect kind of an anonymous entrant who wants to start something new to hit. Like it's, you can't expect everyone to get that. And so um, I think that when we realize that a districts are never going to uh, like invite, invite invention in a long-term way and B that uh, kind of what I was alluding to earlier, that soft power in a district matters much more than we had anticipated, that no matter what design you write down and what legal affordances you get or whatever, as long as you're embedded in the public system, at some point they have to collaborate with you. (laughs) And that surface area creates so much room to kind of like get distracted, lose autonomy and flexibility, like it just creates so many challenges. Um, And so I think that, that one of the lessons, at least in terms of what kind of people who care about this kind of work can take from it is that there's a really sore need for infrastructure for inventing, like a a place that you can go to try something very different. Um, And I think it's very important that that be uh, public in the sense that it's working with the people that public school works with under similar financial and legal constraints. Um, And I think the other lesson that people can take from it, at least in our opinion, is that it's likely that more adversarial approaches will be required in order to get school to change. Um, 
because it's it's unlikely to change willingly. Uh, not not that the people within it don't want to see a change in many of the ways that you or I might care about, but the system and the structure as it's set up, um, I, I think, is likely not capable of it. Um, kind of in the the median case, uh, I'm sure there will always be places where an exceptional superintendent or an exceptional principal or similar kind of can create a bubble for sure. So how about you tell us a little bit more, given all these lessons and how wise Alec is nowadays, can you tell us a little more about how you're going to apply your leverage, your experience to creating change in the future? What are you working on now? It's another way to say that. (laughs) Yeah, totally, totally. Um, So briefly, after the rejection, we took some time to do a bit of a retrospective, trying to answer a few very basic questions, but foremost among them were kind of beginning to articulate some of the lessons we were just talking about so that we could decide what should that mean for us kind of strategically and organizationally. Um, Among other things, we kind of came to the unsurprising conclusions that yes, we still want to create a public institution. (laughs) And yes, uh, adult development is still going to play a really big part of that. So we had started this kind of onboarding year and year long fellowship for training our staff, um, which we found to be incredibly rich and very informative in all sorts of ways. And we decided that both of those elements needed to stick around. Uh, We were very fortunate because after the rejection, because it had been going on for so long and it was pretty public, all sorts of like states and foundations and public schools and private schools and whatever reached out to say either like, uh, do you want to come do it here instead somewhere else? Um, Or uh, we're trying to do something similar. Can we, can you help or can we work together? Um, We had identified a couple other regulatory pathways we were considering, um, both of which would benefit from working with an existing public partner. And so we decided to start kind of walking down the path of some of these collaborations. Um, One of them was some work with some of our existing philanthropic partners, kind of packaging up some of the work that we've done uh, and wanted to do with youth as kind of case studies of great projects and programs. Another was kind of formalizing some of the fellowships that I was describing for our faculty into its own licensure program and graduate program. Um, And then as we started piloting some of our programs, it was only three or four months in before COVID hit. And we were very fortunate that uh, we were able to kind of continue doing some of that work around case studies and adult development, even in the absence of opportunities to work with youth. And during that time, we um, kind of articulated a new approach that has us growing down in age instead of growing up. So we'll, we'll be launching a fellowship later this year for adults that's been kind of redesigned to mirror much more closely the experience we want to create with youth. And that incorporates, I think, some, what I find at least really interesting lessons from our experience with Powderhouse around answering the question, kind of what is Powderhouse if it's not a school? So I think one of the missing pieces for Powderhouse's design initially was basically all the best learning environments that we are familiar with, they're not about your development. Like even on something like a football team, there's the game of football, even if it's very artificial. And even if you're aware that it's like healthy for you or that you're learning leadership skills, or even if you're meta on it, at at the end of the day, everyone gathers around to look at something other than each other. (laughs) Whereas in school, everyone's gathered around looking at each other, (laughs) thinking about their development and what they're learning and so forth. Obviously there are moments where that's not true, but um, so we have some some thoughts that that, uh, we should be ready to share soon around what is Powderhouse if it's not a school. It's great to hear. It's great to hear. The mission of Powderhouse lives on, even if not as originally intended. (laughs) So people want to stay... No, you can go ahead. (laughs) So if people want to stay... you know, up to date on this journey and, and follow you along, how do you recommend people do that? Yeah, uh, feel free to, you can sign up for our newsletter at our website, which actually still has yet to be updated from our rejection. But as I alluded to, we'll be getting a, a fresh coat of paint soon with some of our, our new plans. Um, I'd also encourage folks to feel free to reach out to me directly at alec at or via Twitter at Resnick. But our, our newsletter will be where you'll hear about any, any forthcoming plans for sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sora's Learning Lab. Check out our other episodes for more thoughtful conversations with experts on learning, pedagogy, and more.